I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today, my guest today is Otis Scops. He's trained in, as an electronics and chemical process engineer. He worked as a developer of tailor-made electronics and computer hard and software, and as a renewable energy systems consultant. Over the last 25 years, his interest shifted from mainly technology to ecology and sociology and toward true sustainability. He increasingly puts his acquired knowledge into practice with low-tech, organic gardening, and a focus on the basics of life. Um, he is the author of Crash Course on Your Future in the Anthropocene. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. Second, thank you for being in the program. Yeah, thank you for uh, for having me and for inviting me. Um, so can you talk about the new book, Crash Course, and uh, especially about the relationship between, I guess, our relationship on technology and the ecological and social meltdown we're facing? Uh, yeah, well, maybe I, st I can start by telling about how the book came into being, because um, some time ago, we in 2017, we were faced with uh, the most severe forest fires here in, uh, in Portugal. Um, uh, within a couple of hours, we lost uh, kind of access to all known infrastructures that we normally rely on. So, uh, for, for uh, we were quite close to the to the origins of the fires. We were having lunch with friends, and uh, we had to flee from the fires there. And we tried to keep in touch by mobile telephone, and that didn't succeed for long because mobile telephone didn't work anymore. Shortly after that, the fixed landline also uh, dropped dead. And in the middle of the night, we lost electricity, so we were in the dark. And finally, we also lost our grid water supply. So you can imagine that it's quite stressful if you, uh, if you have to fight a fire in total pitch darkness with only orange glow on the horizon. And I'm, I'm a technician by trade. So it really set me thinking about our uh, dependence on uh, on technology. Um, I already changed kind of my focus from uh, from high tech to low tech. I developed uh, computer hardware software, and um, quite often I, I I wasn't really satisfied by the things that I was making. It often it felt just like making gadgets, and I thought so. Oh, can't I do something more useful with my uh, with my life? So I also started working at um, as a as a freelancer at the Center for Alternative Technology. So I was already aware of of the ins and outs of uh, high tech, and and also the many advantages, in my opinion, about low tech. But that fatal night, of course, with these forest fires, it was very clear that. Um, high-tech infrastructures are much more vulnerable than low-tech because you can see in the order that's, that the things uh, failed, starting from the most high-tech stuff like the mobile telephone network, and after that, normal telephone, uh, electricity, and, and finally water, which is straight plumbing, and probably that was only due because the tank was empty. So that really set me thinking, and I started reading... Uh, more about technology and, and our dependence on it. And I, of course, when you start reading about uh, criticism on technology, you quickly come across people like Jacques Ellul and uh, Louis Mumford and th those kind of philosophers. Um, but of course, if you not just focus on technology, if you if you want to dive a bit further, then you, of course you can't. We have to face uh, the effects of uh, of our current lifestyle on on the ecology on the, on the planet Earth. And all along my my research and, and my just in, in that sense, it wasn't um, it wasn't a preparation for a book. It was just because I was curious, and it was a kind of uh, trauma processing, as you will. So I I I read more and more, and I came across so many material that I thought, well, well, I didn't really know that. And it's, I thought I was quite well informed, but I, I didn't really know it or wasn't aware of things. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm probably not the only one. So it, it's getting a lot of information and it's very useful to 
to share that with uh, with the world. So then the idea of a book um, came into being. So what are some of the things that you that you discovered that you didn't know previously? Well, uh, of course, as, as a technician, uh, you are more uh, aware of all the practical stuff, but you don't, you're not much involved with all the things like uh, like the intrinsic things that technology brings up. Like, for example, like uh, what Jacques Ellul, a French philosopher, wrote a lot about technology. And he wrote his first book in, I think, 1956, and the English version was uh, 1965. Um, but he he analyzed the phenomenon of, of technology, and he came up with a, with a list of points, I think about seven points that are kind of intrinsic aspects, intrinsic uh, characteristics of technology. Um, and he says, uh, that's what I also use in my book, I use the term la technique because I, I want to make it differentiated between uh, normal technology as we know it and the la technique as he uses it in his definition, which is all types of technology that are purely uh, driven by efficiency. And I think that uh, Lewis Mumford uh, also wrote a lot about uh, an American philosopher who wrote about about technology, also uses a kind of similar definition of it. And as soon as you start uh, focusing on, on pure efficiency, every everything changes. If you um, if you take uh, in, in the book, I have a, have a simple example. If if I go out in the in the in the garden to pick cherries. And uh, then I walk around the tree and I see, well, okay, where are the best ones? Uh, where can I pick them easiest and the, the low, lowest hanging fruit? And then, okay, maybe I, I walk around a bit and because uh, it's getting a bit hot on the sunny side, so I go to the other side and I I just move around freely. But if you're driven by efficiency, you have to uh, work in a f- completely different way. And because everything has to be calculated, everything has to be quantified. I mean, if you want, if you're driven by efficiency, you say, okay, how many cherries can I pick in in a short possible time? And of course, they need to be ripe and they need to be uh, completely beautiful and perfect. So everything needs to be quantified and it's a very rational operation. And of course, you can't just freely wander around the tree because that's for sure not the most efficient way to uh, to go about. Um, so th- that's the starting point for his uh, for his analysis for Jacques Ellul and also Mumford's analysis of technology that it's driven by efficiency and then it it sets all kind of different mechanisms into action. That's one of the the main things that that set me thinking about uh, a lot of things I also do and did uh, in in my technological career, so to speak. So let's go let's go back for a moment. I want I want you to to really you said this, but can you highlight again the sort of uh, fragility of much of the high technology, and can you contrast that with um, a potential stability of of lower tech, because I see that in my own life as well. The uh, this is an ex- it's a small example, but an example that that a a couple weeks ago I spilled um, teriyaki sauce on my computer, and uh, it got in the it wasn't even that much, but it got in the right place to destroy the computer, mm-hmm. and then I um. Fortunately, it didn't get the hard drive because I had access to the hard drive by getting a new computer. But for a time, I had no access to my old writing. I had no access to anything. It's it's yeah. It was a great example of how fragile all of this or top heavy all of this technology is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like I like I said uh, about about the fires and the way that we lost the, the infrastructures. The plumbing of the water system, of course, 
uh, plastic tubes, if they run over the surface, they can melt in a fire. But for the rest, uh, probably the reason that we lost access to water was because the tank that was on a, on a hillside nearby was probably empty. And maybe that had to do with the fact that uh, they use electric pumps to fill it. The electric pumps, of course, the electricity supply is already a little bit more vulnerable. Their cables, and not all are high tension cables, so the, their cables running quite close above the ground, and they they get damaged in the fire. So then, oh, there, there was a fire here just recently where I live, and yeah. my entire town uh, was cut off from the grid for two or three weeks. Okay, yeah, well. So that, that's, of course, uh, it, it wasn't, actually, we, we didn't lose grid access for that long. But if you went to uh, the town and wanted to do shopping or wanted to get uh, money from, from a bank uh, machine, from a ATM machine, that didn't work, of course, because that's relying on internet and telecommunications. Uh, if you wanted to uh, make a payment by, by a supermarket uh, chain, by a uh, a big supermarket and you want to use your electronic cards of course that didn't work but on the other hand if you went to the local grocer or the the butcher and you wanted to order something and if if the their electronic uh, cash register didn't work they did it on a piece of paper and hello are you there i'm there Okay, you said they did it on a piece of paper, and then and then I didn't hear anything after that. Okay. Uh, so if if you go shopping and you don't have money with you, but the, the the person in the shop knows your face, you can still buy things and said, okay, you you can pay later, and it's no problem. So that's already kind of shows that the local local structures where people know each other and which are not relying on high tech. To uh, to get things done are more stable and more uh, yeah they more resilient than all those high tech structures where things have to go all over the world before you can complete a transaction. So we can you uh, I don't know if you want to do this now or if you want to wait a little longer, but um, you asked the question. Or where will this all lead? And you called the book Crash Course. Do you want to talk about... We've talked about the fragility. Do you want to talk about the sustainability of high-tech and and the ecological harm that's, that is, that we're seeing all... And, and social harm. You, you, so so um, can you talk about any of those? Um, yeah, I mean... The whole whole story, of course, which is which reached uh, the newspapers, is all about climate change and that you have to change our uh, ways and that we have to lose fossil fuels and have to replace them. And there, it already starts by going wrong, I say, but because I don't think that you need to replace them, I think that we need to use less energy. But if you re replace them or want to replace them, then that's that's just totally impossible, as various peoples and reports have uh, shown by now, because everyone is talking about solar panels and windmills, but in the end, solar panels and windmills can't ever, ever be the solution because there are not enough minerals to even make the first energy transition, all the all the devices we need for the first energy transition, which they had in mind. A report from the Finnish uh, Geological Institute um, appeared in 20, 2021. And there they, they showed that, for example, lithium, we've got only 2.5% of the, of the lithium available in, in the known reserves worldwide. And even if we would extract those 2.5%, it would, with the current rate of extraction, it would take us 10,000 years or something like that. So it's, it's totally absurd to start striving for that kind of replacement action. And that's, of course, uh, if you look at the, the dangers and the, and the damage that mining does, 
that's just horrific. It's it's just what I say, pure arrogance by replacing our, our land base where we get our food and water from by rubble, by by pure uh, dead rocks and, and, and debris. So if you talk about the, the ecological damage that's being done, that's a good example of the mine, the whole mining uh, circus that's that's needed to get all this working. But then again, uh, it's totally impossible because we lack the the amount of uh, of, of minerals that's that's needed for that. Copper is another, of course, another another example because people say, oh yeah, but we don't uh, we don't need lithium because they invent new battery techniques. Oh, very well, but in the end, you need copper wires to connect all those beautiful techniques, and copper is already becoming scarce. And also from the copper reserves, they say, well, we only have 20% of what we need in the future. How, how are we going to solve that? Nobody has, nobody has an answer to that. And if you talk about the social impacts of technology, then... Um, well, you can look at social media that have a bad reputation for various uh, reasons, where people, uh, instead of, in spite that they call it social media, that people feel more isolated and, and they're actually less social than with normal face-to-face -face contact. But nowadays, of course, with artificial intelligence, there's a lot of discussion as well that's uh, how jobs and, and, and normal life is changed and um, kind of anonymized. Um, it, it's, yeah, that's, it's just an endless uh, story of how, how bad influences spread. And it's all about, yes, it has to be. And, and that's the, um, you can't escape it. And that's also one of the things that, uh, that was made clear by those philosophers. Uh, technology or, or la technique um, is a one-way street. You don't replace. Uh, um, you, you only re you only go up the ladder. So if you if you drive a horse carriage, you go up to a car, and if you drive a car, then you're supposed to go to, into an electric car because that's better for the environment. And if you if you write uh, a letter and you use uh, a pen and a pot of ink, then it's an improvement if you can go a typewriter because your your writing is more legible and you go to a computer and etc. And in the end, it's internet and it's sending emails. It's all one direction. It's kind of implied that you adapt those technologies. And that's one of the, the effects of, uh, of La Technique when you're, when you're focused on pure efficiency and that's one of the reasons that uh, Mumford talked about them as authoritarian techniques that they actually get in charge yeah yeah and exactly we serve them as opposed to them serving us yeah and that's the same discussion as you see happening now with artificial intelligence that um, and, and the, the funny thing is that or the, most, the most shocking thing I found, and that was one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book, is uh, Mumford wrote his first book on technology in 1934. And he kind of rewrote or, or extended his uh, story in, in the 70s with his books. And uh, Jacques Lou in 1965. So you can say, oh, what was there for technology? That was, was it to worry about. But apparently... This technology and those points that they mention are so ingrained in this whole technological landscape that indeed the things that they foresaw, like mass surveillance and uh, also this 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 kind of author authoritarian uh, character of it, that's getting more and more clear nowadays. And of course, if you if you uh, look further, then you say, okay, but um, it's just not pure technology. We we live in a, in in civilization, and we have, as a human being, we have certain characteristics and ways of behavior. 
that we learned or adapted uh, or adopted over the ages. And so I also looked at the civilization and, and the development of our uh, Western civilization, which is said to, to start in the in Mesopotamia. Um, and that also uh, showed a couple of things that that were just uh, going in the wrong direction. We started started um, life changed from living in, in hunter-gatherer places towards domestication and, and uh, agri agriculture and living in fixed settlements. And that was kind of the start of our separation between humans and nature. And of course, uh, that separation that's very visible nowadays, of course, where technology, everything is, is focused on technology and how we're going to survive and uh, we're going to invent a new technology and they will solve the problems of climate change and they will solve the problems of uh, feeding uh, 10 billion people on Earth and they will solve uh, the problems of uh, diminishing uh, or minerals or pollution. Everything is focused on technology, but we totally lack the connection with nature. And in the end, uh, our food doesn't come from the supermarkets. Our food comes from nature. And our clean water as well. It doesn't come from a plastic bottle or a tap. It does come from nature. And that's something that's is kind of hidden by by a veil of uh, of technology. So with with civilization and um, the start of of uh, this, this change from uh, hunter gatherers to uh, domestication and, and agriculture, that um, amplified or that, that created the separation between us and nature. If you you can see, say that the fence is the perfect symbol for this. Um, you keep inside the fence the animals that you like and the plants that you like or that you have um, selected and grown like grains or whatever crops that you have. And outside the fence is the wildlife and, and the herbs that you don't like and that you'd rather live without. It's, it's kind of a, a symbol very good symbol for the separation that's uh, that's become part of us. So, I, I really like everything you're saying, and um, I'm wondering if we can discuss something that is um, remarkably stupid, but it uh, people seem to believe it, which is you have a sentence. Um, the earth is finite and therefore has its limits. Mm -hmm. And something that has boggled me since I was a child is how can we have a system that's based on infinite growth on a finite planet? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, I, I literally understood that that wasn't feasible in second grade. So I don't, and, and it's, I don't understand why there are so few of us who understand that. Yeah, that, well, that, that's that's an interesting point, of course, uh, and I think that here we come to to my chapter four, so to speak, uh, where I talk about humanity and and the human psyche, because I think that um, we have come to believe, and especially, of course, since the rise of fossil fuels. Uh, by the way, the, the the whole split between us and nature, that is, of course, that uh, in Western civilization, uh, that only grew worse with a lot of the Western uh, religions. Uh, in the old times, the, the, the first agriculturists, they still lived a kind of a circular life. They lived close to the, the land and the animals and the plants that they bred and, and used. And, they were known with the change of the seasons and that plants wither and die and they grow new new to new seeds but that changed when of course western religions um, showed up 
because then there's a kind of a linear line from birth to death. And after death, you go to even heaven or hell, but you leave this place for good. And okay, so why bother about what happens here? And of course, with the Enlightenment, uh, that could rule even worse. The linear way of thinking, the, the straight rational logic, which is, of course, really in the, in the same line as uh, technology or la technique. From A follows B and from B follows C and it's it's a straight line. And if you just, that's the way of thinking, if you just uh, understand all the different pieces, then we can understand the whole. Well, that has by now been shown to be total nonsense. And after that, of course, uh, in the 18th, 19th century, we got to use, began to use fossil fuels. And by using fossil fuels, we also removed the energy limits that we had. Because before that, we used muscle power and maybe we used muscle power of a draft animal. But once you can start using um, fossil fuels, that whole picture changes. If you, if you use a horse to plow uh, a field, you can only do so much with just a horse. But if you use fossil fuels to power tractors and combines and whatever, then the sky is the limit. You can go endlessly. And we've grown accustomed to that kind of abundance. And also because uh, when one source of oil was exhausted, okay, they found another one and they found another one and another one. And they didn't realize that, or we didn't realize that, of course, you can find 100 other ones, but in the end, they all will be gone because we consume it a lot uh, faster than it's replenished. So, but that whole way of thinking of, of endless abundance, that is one of the main traps. And that is something that, of course, uh, William Catton made very clear in his book Overshoot, which is... Um, one of the books that really set me thinking as well, because it's 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 so plain and it's so logic, but we kind of overlook it that we the the richness and the abundance that we are used to that it's driven by or, or fueled by fossil fuels, and so this whole carrying capacity that we are are using that we're relying on it's temporary. Because fossil fuels are temporary, are endless, or, or not, are not endless, are limits, are limited. So, so, I, it's it's difficult, you know. I've written a bunch of books about this, and I've read Overshoot, and I've read Mumford and Lul, and yeah. you see people. I don't remember his name, but there's a Taoist philosopher from 2,500 years ago or longer, who's talking about how uh, the hill used to be covered with trees, but now that the city has grown, the hill has been denuded. Yeah. And so it's not... It's not... Again, this is not cognitively challenging stuff, but there is this um, fierce momentum. And can you talk a little bit about what you see, <clears throat> excuse me, what you see, well, what, how you see this playing out? Well, <clears throat> um, it's, I think that in the end, it all comes down to a couple of human characteristics and, uh, one of the things that I, I see is, is what I call arrogance. And that's also what um, it's called a reticopsychosis. And um, I forgot his name by now. Um, the American writer. Um, it, it's, the, it's that we have lost the concept that we are part of nature. And that was when uh, the, the American Indians were confronted with the Europeans, and, and, uh, like, like Columbus, 
and they saw that the way they those people behaved that they they were totally disconnected from the life source from from nature and they had a very arrogant and haughty attitude and i think that's uh that is together with with uh with the denial at the moment i think uh the biggest problem and all the all the things they try to turn the tides mainly by uh putting in uh, in place technology they just bypass that we are living on a finite planet and i mean how how can you uh, i mean there've been made publications about uh, about how many people there'll be uh, living on earth and that range from 1 billion to to 100 billion or 1000 billion and makes you wonder how do they how do people think about that how do they how did it come to those kind of calculations? It's totally unrealistic. And if we don't change our mindset and our, our don't look at the essence of the problem that uh, the Earth is finite, that we've got a, a limited carrying capacity and that we've overshot this carrying capacity by using fossil fuels, but of course not only fossil fuels, but all the minerals and all our activity is expanding and expanding. You know, I just just two days ago, I saw a news article about um, Putin uh, wants he's got a new plan in place to raise the birth rate of Russia because Russia has right now one point five children per woman per woman. And when I read that a country has one point five children per woman. I am delighted. And yeah. <laughs> um, this entire article was about how this is a disaster and um, they have to try to do things to fix it. And yeah. that's the level of denial that we face when you have, I mean, so population will go down at some point, human population. And I would vastly prefer that it go down through women having 1.5 children per per woman, so that's below yeah. re, below replacement rate. Yeah, I would much rather that happen than it happen through mass starvation or ecological collapse or um, disease. I, I I don't I don't understand. Anyway, that's that's all. It's just I'm I'm just giving example that's happening. Or or also a couple of days ago, I read another article about Elon Musk saying that we have to expand intergalactically. And yeah, it's it's totally beyond me. And uh, because of all those, uh, I mean that's pure. That's what I call pure arrogance. And if you say, oh, we need more children because 1.5 is not enough to sustain our current level, then I, I would say, well, yeah, okay, face the facts, we are with too many. So it's it's a good thing that we go down in numbers. And some people say, oh, well, but globally it is below 2.1, which is needed or something like that. Maybe. Maybe, but uh, in China they uh, they already uh, stopped this one child policy, which wasn't very nice in China implemented anyway. But okay, because they also see at, uh, that they're gonna get a very big part of the of the population being old and grey and retired, and a small part of the working population that needs to take care of them. And of course, the same is happening in Europe. And one thing that uh, that is going to happen is that uh, Africa is apparently, uh, or is apparently, it's, it's logically, it's still growing quite, quite fast, and the African population and those people want a better life, and they look if they can go to Europe. Well, in a way, that's it's it's a very nice combination, but of course, when you see the current state of affairs, uh, Europe is closing its borders. But if you need young people to work and to take care of the elder elderly people 
and you lack those younger people in your own uh, population, then it would be more than welcome to get people in that are from another um, continent and are looking for a better life. But of course, that's not the accepted way of thinking. So, but all those things together, and um, mainly, I think, also climate change is having such severe effects that, um, yeah, I, I just read a newsletter that say, okay, one and a half degree is still into uh, into the picture. Because, yeah, it's going so well with all those solar panels and uh, the change to all other energy sources. But all those things are just denying the real problem. They don't see the real problem. And the real problem problem is this overshoot situation where there, where there is too many people consuming too much. Overshoot is, is the product of two factors, population times consumption. And both uh, factors are very useful or, or are necessary to, to use, but both are not quick acting handles to 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 have an effect on this uh, on this effect of overshoot so that's why i think that in the end we won't manage to reach a stable state and of course if you look at um, limits to growth 1972 and the follow up um try uh, runs of uh, of their uh, prognosis they all point in the same direction that we, and that's where the term business as usual comes from in my book as well. We're just running in the same rhythm and the same thing as that we've done since, since we started fossil fuel, using fossil fuels probably. So therefore, I think, well, okay, we can't avoid a collapse. We still can do a lot to, uh, to soften our crash landing, but we can't avoid it. And the acceptance of that problem is essential to really to get a new mind shift and to get into another way of thinking. And that other way of thinking is then, of course, uh, that we have to realize our real connection with our life source, which is nature and, and the, and the biosystem, biosystem. So we need an ecocentrism instead of anthropocentrism. Um, that's one of the main points I, I'm, I'm making, I think, that the acknowledgement of the problem being overshoot and the, the mind shift that is needed to not avoid a collapse, but to soften the crash landing and to make our life more resilient by also focusing uh, on, on local, living locally and solving all your problems and your needs as local as possible. And that's, of course, very difficult if you want to uh, keep using your smartphone and keep using your uh, your plastic uh, buckets and whatever we use. Because it's all dependent on, A, fossil fuels and a global working system of technology and, and communication and transport. So, yeah, that's that's my main point, I guess. I don't know if that's clear enough. <laughs> no, it's very clear. It's uh, one of the things that interested me most about the whole COVID experience was I started following it when about 10 days after they shut down Wuhan, a Hyundai factory in Korea shut down because they couldn't get parts from Wuhan. And yeah. that was 1,500 miles away, 1,000 miles away, 2,000 miles away, a long ways away. And again, I mean, I'm. this is just another way of making the same point you started with about the fragility of the high technology that it seems to me to be extraordinarily stupid to have an economic system that is so vulnerable to interdiction through um, anything from a war to a virus to a um, to closing down of a city to an earthquake to a fire, and 
that seems especially true for for stuff like food. People always, um, you know, I I I loved your section on, you know, how we need to end the 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 technosphere, and uh -huh. um, people ask me what I would do if if I was suddenly put in charge of the economy and I wouldn't crash the economy overnight. What I would do is. One of the first things I would do is relocalize food systems. I, I find it extraordinary. There's, there are chickens raised in horrible factory farm conditions in Arkansas that are then shipped to China to be processed and then shipped yeah, back yeah, to the United yeah. States to eat. And that, that, that's all completely nuts to me. I think yeah. if, if I were in charge of everything, one of the things I would do immediately is start relocalizing everything we can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's totally absurd. And um, I I gave gave a presentation uh, a couple of days ago, and I combined that with the film Behemoth about mining in China. I don't know if you if you know that film. You're you've got a mining background yourself, I think. Um, but that absurdity of of life and the way that that land uh, the land is ruined. It's it's just beyond comprehension but i i'd like to um to say something about you you mentioned the covid crisis and uh i've been following a bit of that as well and i got interested in in a guy matthias de smet which is a professor a belgian professor in clinical psychology and he works on on mass psychosis and mass uh, psychology and he said well a lot of the problems, especially during the COVID crisis, but I think that you can extend that to our, to our current global crisis, is that there's a, a state of mass hypnosis. And there, there are many people, uh, more people that have written about it um, in, in, in the past as well. But he says there are four things that need to exist or have to be in place if you want a large-scale mass phenomenon to emerge. And the first thing is there needs to be a lot of socially isolated people, people who experience a lack of social bonds. And that's, of course, what you see now as one of the things. And the second thing is there needs to be a lot of people who experience a lack of sense making in life as well. Well, I only have to think about the, the book uh, Bullshit Jobs of David, uh, David Graeber, for example. And the third point, there needs to be a lot of free-floating anxiety and uh, free-floating psychological discontent. And if those four factors are in place, then it's very likely that people get into a mode where they, they lack social bonds, they lack sense-making, then people look for, for a way out. There's this feeling, feeling of anxiety. And I talk about it in my book as well. Anxiety, that's not the same as, uh, as fear. In, in a fearful situation, you have uh, either a fight or flight response. But anxiety is kind of vague, hanging around somewhere. And it's loading you with stress, but you can't get rid of it. And if we face the problems, if you look at the problems, everyone, of course, feels that things are not okay. Uh, that's this this floating anxiety is all around you and if it's about uh, climate change or about uh, social unrest or war in in whatever place it's there and isolated people well especially of course with covid that was very clear that people are, are isolated but like i said earlier social media apparently do the opposite as what they proclaim to do they don't uh, connect people, but they isolate people. Well, lack of sense-making. Uh, Behemoth is, in this case, a very good example. If you see the people working in those mines and, and just by hand filling uh, trucks with, uh, with coal dust, it's, it's totally, totally mind-numbing and, and without any sense. And if all those things combined, People look for a way to relieve, to get rid of that tension and, and that unease and the discontent. And if something offers 
a ray of hope, like for example, okay, we're gonna have the Green New Deal. We're gonna do it totally different. Look at this. We're gonna replace all these fossil fuels with solar panels and windmills, and we're gonna get rid of this all this dirty oil, and we still can have this same life as we're used to. I mean, okay, we're gonna drive an electric car, of course, but so. And that, that whole picture is a total delusion. And that's not the same as propaganda. It's not that the, the, the people that are governing us, that they know how things work and they just lie to us and say, well, we're going to have a Green New Deal and blah, 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 blah. No, they believe that as well because they, they are sitting in the same bubble. They're sitting in the same state of mass hypnosis where they believe, really believe, that this will solve the problems and this, this will relieve themselves and the other people from their anxiety and, and all the shit that's happening. But they all, like I try to make clear in my book, they all lack the, the view of the real cause and, and that we can't get around that. And that's, in the end, is, is the fact that the Earth is finite and that we need a biosphere to, um, to supply our, our needs. That's, I think that's it. <laughs> okay, so a, a few things. One is, can you say the name of that uh, mass psychosis person again? That is uh, Matthias de Schmet. He's a Belgian uh, professor in clinical psychology. And then the second thing is uh, we have about uh, five or six minutes left. And mm -hmm. um, two questions is um, you've sort of addressed this already, but what do you want people to do with this information is one question. Uh, what do we do about the circumstance that we're in? And uh, the other one is how can people find out more about this book and about your work? Uh, well, what I what I, I, the, the book has three parts. The first part describes the state of affairs. Uh, the second part, and so that's that's the current state of ecology and this technology story and and how we grew into the civilization. The second part is uh, about what I call business as usual, and if that continues, that we're facing collapse. And the third part I have called change for resilience, and I think that this change has to start with the real acceptance of the of the problems that i've described earlier then and this mind shift and this mind shift uh, encompasses that we have to let go of our arrogance and that we have to uh, adopt an ecocentric mentality and a cyclical mentality instead of this linear thinking and that we have to let go of our arrogance in thinking that we can create uh, like a kind of god that we can create the world as we as we want it, which is, as most people now are used to, this kind of technological world. So, one of my pleas is therefore for simplicity, for for downscaling, and also from for uh, living a more local life, and those go together well, because if you really focus on local and you have to skip all the stuff that you get from all over the world, then you have automatically to do with less. But that's, it's impossible to do it otherwise. And uh, if you solve things local, you also, um, the problems are smaller, the, you, you, get, you get an overview. And if you grow your own food, you also notice that you, you see what you're doing, you can take responsibility for what you're doing because you have an overview of what you're doing. You feel that if you uh, throw paint uh, diluter in the, in, the, in the sink and it will end up in your garden, you know that it's not good. So you won't do that. But if, you're, if your sewage goes way out of the village or the, or the town where you live and is processed and whatever, happens with it, then it's out of view, out of mind, externalized, not, not visible anymore. So there's a lot of pros in focusing on a local, on a local life, in a simple local life. So that's one of the main things I promote. 
And a very important part as well is that because we're so dependent on all this stuff, if we adopt this simple and more localized life, we already have, say, said goodbye to all this uh, complicated, uh, vulnerable technology for, for a big deal. So when the whole system collapses, you don't feel what you don't need. If you don't miss what you don't need, or you have low-tech alternatives, you don't talk with someone... Uh, Wait, are you there? Hello? Hello? Did, uh, did the connection drop? Yeah, it could it drop. So you were you don't miss what you, you won't miss what you've already given up. Yeah, exactly. You, you don't miss what you have already given up, or um, maybe you have found a local a local low tech alternative, uh, and you don't need to talk to someone on the other side of the world by social media, but you can talk over the of the of the hedge by uh, with your neighbor so those points i i think that um that's the way we have to go and that will be if we don't choose it voluntarily i guess that it will be forced upon us so uh, it's the same what you said about uh, limiting our population numbers uh, better do it voluntarily than by uh, by force from above so last question, um, how can people uh, buy your book? How can people read your book? How can people find out more about your work? Um, well, I've got a website and that's called crashcoursebook.eu and everything is written uh, on one line without uh, dashes or whatever or points in between, crashcoursebook.eu. And there can people buy my book. I uh, have self-published the book. Uh, so you can buy either the ebook or you can buy a paper version, uh, which is uh, printed by uh, print-on-demand services. Um, yeah, and I, I have a social media account, but I only work with Mastodon because I'm also against all this uh, social media circus and surveillance and everything that's connected with it, which I don't like. So I'm quite limited in my uh, in my uh, reach, maybe, but okay. Uh, we'll just see where uh, where things go from here. Well, thank you so much for all of this, and thank you for writing your book, and thank you for your work in the world, and for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Otis Cops. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. Mm -hmm.